41 days after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph were still in Bethlehem there, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They took Jesus as an infant to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. This would have been the normal practice for any Jewish family of the time. But something significant happened on this trip to the temple. They came to the temple with baby Jesus, and there was old Simeon, right? And you remember Simeon, right? Every time you would go to the temple, there's old Simeon talking about the prophecies of the Messiah, anxiously awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. Simeon was convinced, and he had been actually uh, convinced by the Holy Spirit, that he would see the Messiah in the flesh. And so he was always on the lookout. And of course, at that moment, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus up onto the Temple Mount. And there's Simeon, and he sees the baby Jesus, and, and the Spirit confirms this is the Messiah. So Simeon grabs, uh, I mean, appropriately. He didn't like, you know, steal him away or whatever. But he, he takes Jesus into his arms. He lifts him up and he utters uh, a, a prayer of praise and prophetic word about the Messiah. This is what he says in Luke chapter 2, one part of it. Praising God, he says, You, God, have prepared salvation in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. A light of revelation for the Gentiles, and glory for your people Israel. The connection of the work of the Messiah to light didn't start with Simeon. You might recall the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in darkness. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the time of Christ about the fact that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would bring light to those who dwell in darkness. The, jo- the Gospel of John starts off connecting the work of Jesus and the character of Jesus to this concept of light as revealed in the Scriptures. Of course, in John 1, we read that, that the Word, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in chapter 1, verse 4, we read that in Him, that is in the Word, was life, and that life was the light of men. So we have this connection of the work of the Messiah to light, because the Messiah is light. And it's in the Gospel of John that we read that Jesus is the light of the world. Now, when we think about that, especially as we celebrate the Incarnation, we need to double-click on that concept. We need to dive a little deeper and ask, what does it mean and why should I care that Jesus is the light of the world? What does that, that, that picture of light actually signify? And at the bare minimum, right, we can acknowledge that the absence of light is darkness. And darkness is used as a metaphor in the Scriptures to describe moral failure, right? It's used to describe people who are lost, people who don't know the truth, who are not worshipers of God, and who are behaving in ways that are sinful and destructive. We would confess that we live in dark days. We live in a culture that is grasping for morality, but doesn't know how to define it. We live amidst times where people are brutal to each other relationally. I don't know if you've driven recently, right? But it's, listen, these are not friendly roads out there. I don't know if you've ever tried to board a plane recently. We're not flying in the friendly skies the way we used to in the good old days. And the fact is, it was never that good in the good old days either, was it? 
No, we, we know that there's darkness that's clearly a problem in our culture, right? We're living in it and amongst it. But we also recognize that sin is not just a problem out there, but it's a problem in here. And sometimes we choose darkness. Sometimes we value our money or our reputations or our pleasures, our desires more than we value Jesus. And when we choose sin, we choose darkness. Not to mention the fact that because of sin, we do live in a broken world. And for the moment, we still experience the realities of sickness and our bodies breaking down and things not working right. And then ultimately, we have to face the challenge of death. In the midst of all this, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And when Jesus makes that proclamation in John 8, there's a lot going on. It functions on two levels, really. There's a a reality of what Jesus is claiming when he says that. We're going to talk about that and unpack it. And then there's the so what, the way that it impacts us and what it means for those who hear his teaching and who respond in faith. And so we're going to look now in John chapter 8 and just to consider why should we care that the light of the world took on flesh for us? Why should we care that Jesus is the light of the world? All right, so you've got, you've got your Bibles there. We're in John chapter 8. And we're, like I said, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Now, just to give you a, a quick um, catch up on the immediate context of the gospel of John. At this point, we're a few years into Jesus's earthly ministry And he's actually in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? This is the the main feast of the fall season, okay? And so he has declared at the high day of the feast uh, that if anybody's thirsty, they should come to him and drink, okay? That was at the end of chapter 7. And so here Jesus has been boldly teaching at the temple. And so the the reality of his conflict with the Jewish leadership is getting uh, more and more pronounced, And we're still in the midst of this tabernacle celebration, and that'll become significant here for us just in a moment. So we're picking it up in verse 12, all right? And this is, again, in the context of celebrating that feast in Jerusalem there in the fall. Jesus spoke to them again. So we envision him teaching on the Temple Mount. I'll show you in a minute. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Okay, I am the light of the world. Now just pause right there. We're just going to get the first half of verse 12. When Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world, he's doing that at the Feast of Tabernacles, which means something. So let me just show you the Temple Mount, and I can show you what would have been going on, because this is significant. So let's take a look at this, okay? This is a nice uh, model of Jerusalem in the first century that's, um, that's in Jerusalem. So if you go to Israel with us, and we visit this model, and um, you can take lots of pictures of it, okay? So you're looking at the Temple Mount. It's, you're basically like hovering in a drone over uh, the Kidron Valley, right above the, the Mount of Olives, basically. So that's where you are at this, at this moment, okay? Here's the, the temple. This is Herod's temple, and uh, we, have a, we have really good information that this is exactly what it would have looked like. And uh, this court right here, this not right inside where the actual temple building is, but the next layer out, this is the court of the women, okay, which is where men and women would have been gathering, and then some of the men would, gone, would have gone on, but it's called the court uh, of the women. So the reality is Jesus was teaching a lot during this time over here in the porticos, like along the sides. Then also we'll see John actually identifies probably that he's in there teaching in the court of the women, um, doing this instruction. Now in the court of the women and actually across the whole temple, uh, the whole temple structure during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would set up all these lights as part of the celebration. 
kind of like we do Christmas lights. Like they would set up a bunch of lights. And, and there's, talk, there's talk about four huge lamps that they would set up. We have this in, um, in records from the time. So we actually know. They would set up these lamps right there in the court of the Gentiles. And, and then around, excuse me, the court of the women. And then out in the court of the Gentiles. So much so that the light from the temple they, that eyewitnesses said that it basically lit the whole city. You could kind of have the this whole city kind of had this glow. Why would they set up lights to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, as tabernacles, they're celebrating and remembering God's rescuing of the nation of Israel and leading them through the wilderness. And you might remember that God led his people through the wilderness, starting in Exodus chapter 13, appearing to his people as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of what? Fire by night, right? And so to remember the goodness of God and him leading his people to salvation, to rescue, they would set up all these special lights. And what would they do? They would dance. They would celebrate. They would remember. They would, they would remind one another of the goodness of God. So at this feast, when all these special lights are set up and the temple's basically glowing, right, in a way that it didn't any other time of the year, and as people are celebrating and rejoicing, Jesus sits down and he says, let me tell you something. I am the light of the world. When Jesus says that, He no doubt is connecting his identity with the pillar of fire in Exodus 13. So already he's laying claim to deity, right? He's connecting his character, and he's saying, that was me. I'm the one that shines the light in the darkness, right? Of course, this makes sense given what we had in John chapter 1. But the fact is, when Jesus makes that claim, it's a bold claim. There's more to it than even just that. The, the verbiage, I am, when he says, I am the light of the world, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements, okay? And these statements connect back to Isaiah chapter 40 to 55, where we have a description of the sovereign God of the universe, the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah speaks there, and, and the Lord speaks through him, claiming this identity as Yahweh, the sovereign God of the universe. There's a phrase that occurs Uh, recurrently through Isaiah 40 to 55, where the Lord says, I am he, I am he, I am he. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, this is exactly that phrase, word for word. And it's kind of of an unusual phrase, so it matches perfectly there. So the point is this. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is claiming to be the sovereign Lord of the universe from Isaiah 40 to 55, and he's claiming to be the pillar of fire from Exodus 13 and 14. These are bold claims, dramatic claims. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I want you to understand who exactly you're dealing with. The pillar of fire was a tangible reminder of God's presence. It was a manifestation of God's presence to his people as he led them through the wilderness. And at the bare minimum this morning, when we think about the character of Jesus, when he lays claim to that divine title, I am the light of the world, that light is not just for the Jewish people, that is for the world, as Simeon, of course, prophesied when he held up baby Jesus, right? He's a light for the Gentiles. When Jesus claims that, he is saying, I am the manifestation of the presence of God on earth. And in the incarnation, that's exactly what Jesus did. He was God in the flesh. But that manifestation is intended to teach us and remind us of something specific. At the bare minimum, it's a reminder that God is with us. You can imagine ancient Israel, you know, wandering through the wilderness. And as the wanderings went on, maybe wondering, is anybody even driving this bus? Like, what is even happening? 
But then at night, there they would see the pillar of fire, reminding them, God is leading us. God is guiding us. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're wandering, if you're here this morning and you feel lonely and you feel forgotten, you need to know that fundamentally your greatest hope is not in another, in another person. It's not in an institution. Your greatest hope is in Jesus, who is the light of the world. And he says, I'm here. I'm here. I've come for you. The light still shines. In fact, we, we would argue theologically that when Jesus sends his spirit to indwell his followers, this is precisely what he's doing. He's giving us a pillar of fire to lead us. He is actually reminding us, I'm the light of the world, and I am still shining for you every day. But the fact is, we might struggle. We might, we might forget. We might feel forgotten. And you just need to know that when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he means it for you. He means it for you. I'm not sure if we can really redeem the audacity and the ostentatiousness of our Christmas decorations that we do as a culture. But when you see a bright display of Christmas lights, maybe just maybe think back to the temple and the Feast of Tabernacles and Jesus claiming, I am the light of the world. It wasn't just a reminder of God's presence, though. It was also a cause to celebrate. Again, think about Israel dancing under those lights, rejoicing in God's provision in ages past. And here Jesus says, I am giving you reason to celebrate. I am the light of the world. I'm the light under which you should dance. You should be excited and find joy. And I think this is important because on so many days, we are robbed of joy in our daily lives. Again, we are living in a dark world. And whether it's our failures or the failures of others, we struggle to, to find joy, to be content, and even to celebrate and to rejoice. And Jesus is not saying that hard things don't happen, obviously. But what he is saying is that as I'm the light of the world, I give you valid reason to have joy every day. Where we struggle is we tether or anchor our joy to circumstances, right? We tie our joy to the, our bank account balance. We tie it to market performance, we tie it to relationships and how good or, or, or how great a relationship is going. We, we tie it to our, our job performance or our grades at school, right? We tie it to peer approval. We tie it to how we look or how much we weigh or how much we can bench, right? And when we tether our joy to all those circumstantial realities, when things are going good, guess what? You'll have joy. But when things aren't going good, guess what? You're robbed of your joy. Jesus says, you want to celebrate? You want a reason to have joy? I am the light of the world. So go ahead and dance. Go ahead and celebrate. Have joy. Go ahead and rejoice because I have come. And that means something. Now, of course, of course, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he knows the prophecy of Simeon. He knows the prophecy of Isaiah. In fact, Jesus is the one who created light. And God said, let there be light. Do you remember? And there was light. No complication. He just made it. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is fully aware of the fact that that connects his claim to being the Messiah to not only his deity, but also his goodness. You realize that without light, we can't have life, right? And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So hey, world, come to me. Find joy in me. Find provision in me. That's exactly where he turns in the second part of verse 12. He calls us to respond. 
Notice again, John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. We're just going to focus on the second half of that verse. Anyone who follows me, Jesus says, will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when Jesus uses the term walk in darkness, that phrase, he's, he's connecting directly to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 in that prophecy there. So he's acknowledging, yes, okay, the fact is many walk in darkness. And even though there is darkness generically in the world, Jesus says times have changed. And now the light has come. And so Jesus says, if you follow me, like anyone who follows me, they no longer walk in darkness. Nope. Instead, they have the light of life. They have the light which gives life, the light which sustains life, the light which brings about life. Jesus is that light. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, like when you put your faith in me, when you trust in me, right, when that happens, you no longer now walk, you no longer live and make decisions according to the darkness, but now you have the light of life. And again, if we kept reading in the Gospel of John and as we read the rest of the New Testament, we learn that that means that the Spirit of Jesus indwells us and then leads us to live in distinctly Christian ways that bring him glory. So we make decisions to not do things and decisions to do things and and to speak in certain ways and not speak in other ways because of the spirit of Christ that's leading us. That's the light of life. Jesus grants us spiritual life, eternal life, and he's the only one who can do it. Only the light of the world gives life. The fact is, I think many days we struggle because we seek light or we seek life from other sources. I mean, everybody's chasing after that that satisfying whatever, like the thing that's going to bring satisfaction. We want life. We want light. So we chase it and try to find it in money or try to find it from our family or try to find it in career achievement. Or try to find it from peer approval or pleasure or entertainment or whatever it is. We, we seek light and life from all these other places. And Jesus says, I'm the one that can give it to you. I am the light that brings about life. I am the light of the world. And so he says, anybody who follows me, right, instead of walking in darkness, I give you life. Again, he's not promising ease of circumstances, He's not saying our lives won't have challenges. But what he is saying is, you will be different than the others who refuse to follow me because they're still walking in darkness. Basically, Jesus says, all Christians are wearing night vision goggles. Are you familiar with night vision goggles? Okay, here's what night vision goggles do. They're amazing invention, okay? Key aspect of military warfare in the modern era. The fact is, night vision goggles, while it's at night, you can put these things on and they, they help you to see as if it's day, right? Which is a distinct advantage. So you can actually kind of do what you need to do in the darkness. The fact is, we are living in dark times, in a darkened culture. But Jesus says, you don't have to walk in the darkness. Like, yes, it's dark, but you don't have to walk in the darkness. He says, if you follow me, instead of walking in darkness, you'll have the light of life. You'll have, you'll have access to my spirit, which will lead you in making decisions. The spirit of God leads us in making decisions 
to glorify him, to choose light rather than darkness. Jesus here calls us to respond to his claim to being the light of the world by following him. But as he does so, he's challenging us that that only by following him can we actually navigate living in a darkened world. He gives life in every respect, but the focus here is on eternal life, grace, forgiveness, uh, acceptance, purpose, belonging, and resurrection. Jesus says, I give you all of that. And so right now, while we live in a darkened culture, you need to follow me. You need to not only trust me, but respond to my direction, which really takes us back to this pillar of fire in the wilderness. Because what did the pillar of, of cloud and the pillar of fire do? It was the way that God led his people to the next stop. So they didn't know where to go in the wilderness. And so they waited for the pillar to move. And when the pillar moved, they moved. That's how God led them through the wilderness. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and he lays claim to that pillar of fire imagery, he's also saying, you should follow me. I will lead you. I wonder, are we following Jesus? Because it's one thing to sing songs about Jesus. It's one thing to be willing to be associated with Jesus generically because of our family or whatever. But it's another thing entirely to, in the midst of a darkened world, to follow Christ. To follow him as Lord. Because Jesus does call us to particular ways of living, doesn't he? And while people can be brutal and we live in a harsh environment sometimes, the fact is Christians must be different. We've got to be different. Why? Because we're not walking in darkness. Because Jesus is the light of the world and anyone who follows him, anyone who follows him will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So ask the question, are you following Jesus as Lord? Or are you backseat driving the pillar of fire? Backseat drivers are a curse on our society. (laughs) Have you ever tried to drive with a backseat driver? doing their thing? You know the only thing that's worse than a backseat driver? A backseat driver who doesn't have a driver's license. (laughs) And I just, I mean, not that I know any of those or not that I have four of those living in my house. This is just like hypothetical, right? Backseat drivers telling you, oh, go here, go there. Actually, I tease, right? But, you know, it's real. The struggle's real. But the fact is, it's, it's frustrating when you're driving I mean, you got somebody who's in the back who maybe can't see all of what's going on, and maybe they don't even know what, where we're going or what the laws of the land are, and they're telling you what to do. But is, as ridiculous as that is, isn't it more ridiculous? Isn't it more ridiculous for you and I, created beings, to say to Jesus, Jesus, I think you're supposed to go left here. Jesus, I'm not really, I'm not really cool with the way this situation is developing. So you need to do boop, doop, doop, doop. And basically what we end up doing is dictating to Jesus how he should be Lord over his creation. Which with the I am statements, we're back to Isaiah 40 to 55, where, where basically the claim there, Yahweh says, it's all mine. I'm sovereign over all of it, the whole thing. Which means, yes, I know about your struggle at work. Yes, I know about the pain in the relationship in your family. Yes, I know about the sickness and the diagnosis that that is the problem that you're facing. 
And in the midst of all those challenges, everything that's going on, Jesus says, I am still the light of the world, and I still call you to follow me, not dictate to me. Don't tell me what you need, what I'm supposed to do, but listen to what I have said and respond to me in faith. Jesus says, if anybody will follow me, they no longer walk in darkness. There's a promise here, but that promise is contingent on faith. He says, when you turn to me, when you follow me, you have to actually follow me. So many days, we're, we're backseat driving Jesus. When our best move is always just to follow him. Just to follow him. Now, the reality is not everyone follows. And so what unfolds here is an argument that breaks out on the Temple Mount where Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees in, in Jerusalem as to his teaching, because they know what he's claimed. I mean, it wasn't, when people say Jesus never claimed to be God, no, they're not reading. I mean, listen, he claimed to be God. They understood this claim, and so they challenge him on the veracity of his claim to be the light of the world, namely to be the sovereign Yahweh of Isaiah 40 to 55, uh, to be the pillar of fire from Exodus 13 and 14. So now it gets a little little hairy. Watch, watch how this unfolds, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Now, this is their main beef. And actually, Jesus used the same line of argument in John 5. So maybe they're using his own words against him here. But basically, they say, listen, just because you claim to be God doesn't mean you are God. Because anybody can claim that. And of course, that's true at face value. So they're challenging his testimony that it's not validated, that there's no way to validate it. So anybody can claim that, but... It's not valid. Watch verse 14. Jesus responds. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. Okay, now just pause right there. Jesus, uh, he basically brings the truth of the Trinity to bear on this conversation. So just let him develop it here. But this is what happens. He says, okay, yeah, I hear you, but the fact is, um, even if I'm the only one testifying about my identity, he says, I know where I'm from and where I'm going. Now, where is Jesus from? Well, he was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He moved his primary residence to Capernaum for a while. What is he talking about? He's not talking about his zip code. He's not talking about his address. He's talking about where he's from from, right? So if you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus says, oh yeah, I'm the eternally pre-existent second person of the Trinity. I am from heaven because I am God, equal in substance and glory with the Father and the Spirit. That's where I'm from and that's where I'm going. So he, he lays claim to his, again, divine essence here in this argument. But then he shockingly claims to these religious, spiritual, seminary-trained leaders, he says to them in verse 14, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You don't know heaven. You don't know the character of God. You don't know God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Here Jesus confronts their unbelief, Right? He goes on, verse 15, he says, You judge by human standards, I judge no one. Now this is confusing, because in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus says, I judge everyone. 
Well, what is he saying here? Well, here he's saying that the Pharisees judge merely by human standards. They're like, he's from Nazareth. Jesus is like, you're missing the picture. You're judging me just on an earth-based, like only, you know, uh, earthly perspective here. Jesus says, I'm not from Nazareth. I'm from heaven. I am eternally preexistent. Okay, and so you have not you have not judged that correctly because you don't have the eyes to see. Right? You, you haven't you haven't uh, been illuminated to this truth yet. But the fact is, Jesus says, I judge no one by merely earthly standards. When he says I judge no one, he's not saying he doesn't judge. He'll, he's about to say in a minute, even if I do judge. So he's saying I don't judge by merely earthly standards. I judge by the eternal heavenly standard. So, again, why should we believe him? Well, because he's not from around here. That's the idea. Watch verse 16. And if I do judge, so I don't judge by earthly standards, but and if I do judge, my judgment is true. Because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. This is so important. It's developed in John. It's also developed a little bit in Matthew. If you reject the Son, you reject the Father. The Father sent the Son. What the Son teaches are the Father's words. The Father and Son are in perfect unity in the, in the mission of redemption. And so here Jesus says, well, actually, I'm not the only one testifying about my identity as light of the world because it's not just God the Son saying that. It's God the Father saying that. And so again, here he brings the Trinity to bear on this conversation. And he says, yes, I judge. And, and when I do judge, my judgment is true. And you can know that because it's not just me judging as the Son, but it's also the Father who sent me. Verse 17, he brings the Mosaic law to confirm this. He says, even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. There's a requirement for two witnesses uh, in a couple places in the Old Testament law. One's in Deuteronomy, one's in the book of Numbers. Uh, Either way, Jesus leverages the books of Moses and the law of Moses to, to support his argument. Okay, fine. You don't want to believe me? Well, believe there's two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? The Father and the Son. And by the way, notice here he calls it your law. This is, this is interesting because Jesus is distancing himself from the way the Pharisees read the Old Testament to the way he wrote the Old Testament. He says, listen, you, you, you cherish this law. You, you try to you know, use it as a basis for spirituality and for or, you know, maintaining your presence in, in God's family. Jesus says, the point of the law is to point to me. And to the degree that you have not understood that the point of the law points to me means you have misunderstood it. So he calls it your law. He kind of he distances himself from their reading of the law there. Notice he goes on, verse 18, I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Two witnesses, Father and Son. They don't like it. The Pharisees didn't like it. They didn't like what he was claiming. Note verse 19. Then they asked him, where is your father? Now, this is, this is dirty, okay? Because what they're doing is they are alluding to what appeared to them to be the scandalous circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. And the fact is, it's most likely because Joseph doesn't feature in the gospel narratives that he passed away. Uh, sometime during Jesus's childhood. And so they're basically saying, yeah, where is your father, right? And this is, this is certainly, um, yeah, it, it's, a dirty, it's a dirty tactic. But it exposes the depth of their unbelief, right? That they would go to that, that level of mocking 
Jesus and the circumstances of his birth. Of course, they misunderstood it fundamentally. They asked him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And if you knew me, then you would know the father. And because you don't know me, you don't know the father. Because you don't know the father, you don't know me. There is no, this is really important, there is no recognition of Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah, without the full recognition of his deity. We worship God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And if we change that equation somehow, if we say, oh no, God the Son is not God, or God the Father is not the same in the role as the Son or whatever, right? we start messing with that, that, that reality, what we do is we rob Jesus of his identity as the light of the world. Because he was claiming to be God, absolutely. And so Jesus says, you can't pick and choose here. If you know the Father, you know me. If you know me, you know the Father. But you can't say, oh, we know the Father, but Jesus, we reject you. That's exactly what they were doing. They were saying, we're the ones that really know God the Father, and Jesus the Son is not who he says he is. And Jesus says, exactly. You're asking where my Father is? Exactly. You don't know my Father. And if you knew the Father, you would know the Son. Verse 20 gives us the, the, the actual location of this conversation. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple. But no one had seized him. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The treasury was in the court of the women. That's why we know that's where the conversation went down. That's what I showed you earlier on the slides. What we're supposed to understand and learn from this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees is pretty simple. The Father and the Son testify about the light. The Father and Son testify about the light. This whole scene is a caution against unbelief. And before we get too, uh, you know, I guess lenient on ourselves, because, hey, we're here in a church worshiping Jesus like we believe, right? Absolutely. I hope so. But the fact is, rejection of God is still possible even if you claim to be religious or you attend a lot of church. I mean, that's what's going on here. They've rejected God the Son, and in so doing, they have rejected God the Father. But when we reject Jesus and his authority, we do that thinking we know better, which is exactly what these guys thought. They thought, we know better than this guy. Where is he even from? Now, that rejection takes some different forms today. We've talked about it in our series through Matthew, but it, it bears repeating because it's important that we basically face the reality that we could be rejecting Christ. Of course, initially, there's fist-shaking defiance. That's what I call the first level. Fist-shaking defiance. This is what we see often in our culture. This in-your-face, I don't believe in the, the God of the Bible, I don't believe in Jesus, and anybody that does is my enemy, right? It's kind of that, that fist-shaking defiance against God. I mean, the Pharisees are almost there. I mean, they're really close to that, aren't they? Because they're saying, you're not God, we know God, and so they're, they're like right there with that bold rejection of Christ. But sometimes, sometimes rejection of God is just, it's just in the form of disinterest. Where basically people just, I'm just not interested. I'm busy doing other things. I'm busy going to school. I'm busy working. I'm busy doing my family thing. And we've got this, we've got that. And, we've got, and it's like, oh, we've got this in my schedule and that in my schedule. And frankly, the God question is just not a prominent part of life. That is a form of rejection of the father and son. 
It's rejection by distraction. You're just saying, God is not important to me. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, anyone who follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, right? That does not allow for a a lifestyle where we say, yeah, I'll get to God later. When we say that, we're walking in darkness. So that's another form of rejection, disinterest. A third kind of rejection that we find today in our culture is quiet rebellion. This is where, you know, maybe you behave most of the time, but then when push comes to shove, you steadily, slowly but surely make decisions that go against the lordship of Jesus. So Jesus says go left. Ah, yeah, I'll go right. And don't make a big deal about it, okay? I'm just, I'm going right. And up here, Jesus says, go right. You say, oh, no, I would prefer to go left. That's not a big deal. Just relax. And it's just a quiet lifestyle of consistently making decisions. You're not shaking your fist. You're not posting anti-Christian stuff online. You're not yelling at people. You're not persecuting Christians. You're just consistently making decisions, walking in darkness. And the follower of Jesus is not perfect. But the follower of Jesus, right, has the light of life which means we, we say no to sin. And when we fail, we call it sin. We don't consistently, regularly, over months and years, just continue to do what we want to do with no regard for Jesus, who is the light of the world. If Jesus is just a man, we're in trouble. But he's not. And so it begs the question, are you factoring Jesus into your, you name it, your financial decisions, in your romantic pursuits, in your vocational you know, issues at work and career decision-making, in the way you approach school, in the way you approach your marriage, in the way you approach parenting, in the way you approach retirement planning, in the way you approach your holiday plans and travels. Like Jesus has to be the center of all of it because he is the light of the world. And if we justify him not being at the center, and if we do that consistently, that's a mark of unbelief, where we don't know the Father because we don't know the Son. The Father and Son, though, together testify about the light. And praise Jesus, he is not just a guy. He's not. He is the light of the world. John says this all went down by the treasury there at the Temple Mount, and shockingly, nobody arrested him. Like, that's why he mentions that in verse 20. Nobody arrested him, which was a big deal. But then he explains why. At the very end of verse 20, did you catch it? Because his hour had not yet come. You know what that tells us? That tells us his hour would come. And his hour did come. If you read on in the Gospel of John, we, we read what? That Jesus will go to the cross... And as the light of the world, he will submit to the darkness temporarily so that we can be rescued from it. And when Jesus rises from the dead, he proves that darkness didn't win, it lost. I mean, listen, there's so much we could say about the character of Jesus. But when he says, I am the light of the world, brothers and sisters, he means it. He is the light of the world. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself as someone who has rejected or is rejecting Christ, I want to encourage you that as long as you're drawing breath, you have the opportunity to repent and to turn to him. And I just, I just can testify 
that walking in darkness is the worst, but Jesus is the light of the world. And so there's hope for anyone to turn to Christ while we're drawing breath. The Pharisees didn't want to believe the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. The Pharisees didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh. They did not want to submit to Jesus. That was the real rub. At the end of the day, their rejection was all about control. And it's easy to affirm faith, but I think we have to ask the question, am I living like Jesus is the light of the world? Am I reminded of his presence? Am I celebrating with joy what he has done for me? Am I following his direction? You can only answer that question for yourself. Are you following Jesus, the light of the world? Jesus walks out of the temple. This is actually how it went down. He walks out of the temple and he encounters a man who had been born blind. A man who had, for his entire life, literally walked in darkness. Disciples are with him. They're like, what's going on with this guy? Jesus says, well, there's something going on. Let me show you. Jesus refers again to the fact that he's the light of the world. And I kid you not, he, he heals the guy. He does it by process because he's proving a point to the leaders, the Jewish leaders. So he heals this guy. Long story short, the guy does what Jesus tells him to do and he, gives, he's, he receives his sight, right? So his like, world has changed best day ever, right? And so he's celebrating, and these Pharisees, they're not cool with it. They're like, oh, slow down. Okay, first of all, let's get an eye chart in here and just see if this guy, can you really see? I mean, they did that whole game. They, 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 I'm serious. They, they draw him in. They're questioning him. And then they're saying, yeah, we know you can see and everything, but can you at least just denounce the guy that healed you? Like, he, you know, he's definitely, and this guy's so confused. He's like, I don't know what you want me to say. He's like, he basically gets put on trial for the fact that he was healed. He says, I don't know what you want me to say. They, they push him. They, they bring his parents in. John 9. They bring his parents in. Can you just tell this guy that the guy that healed him is a sinner and that he's wicked and he shouldn't follow him? And they're all going, listen, leave us out of it. We're not the ones that got healed. This is his problem. I mean, talk, that was an awkward family, by the way, conversation later. <laughs> like, sorry we didn't back you up when, you know, Jesus heals you. But nonetheless, they're, they're going after this guy. This guy was w- literally walking in darkness. And now he can see because the light of the world has gifted him sight. This is what he says. He answered after a bunch of back and forth, and he answered the Pharisees, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. I think you're missing the point, guys. <laughs> I don't know this guy, but I know that I was blind and now I'm not blind. He goes on. John tells us they ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken. Oh, it's so powerful. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told him. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. This guy gets it. His life was changed. We're celebrating the incarnation. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The question is, 
has your life changed? His hour came, he died and rose from the dead, and now he calls us to follow him, the light of the world. Would you please pray with me and we'll ask Jesus to help us. Lord, we thank you for this passage in the Gospel of John. We thank you and praise you that you are the light of the world. We praise you that by faith in you, we are gifted light and life. Lord, we confess that we do live in a dark world, and so we ask for your help. Help us as we follow you to walk in the light. Lord, I pray especially for those who know this morning that they're making sinful decisions. They're harboring sinful attitudes. Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their sin by your Spirit. Lord, we confess that you are the second person of the Trinity, the Word who became flesh for us. But we ask that you would help us to worship you and to follow you. We praise you for the transformative work that you do every day as you rescue sinners. We pray that you would help us to live in light of the fact that you are the light of the world. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.